When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith declared, I could not be shaken. After the one step back of section three, we're ready for the two steps forward of section four. And it is a masterpiece, quoted daily by full-time servants of God all around the world. Once I caught the vision of that, I loved rolling, well, I didn't love rolling out of bed as a missionary, that was hard, but I did love, once I rubbed the sleep out of my eyes, to be able to say, he aquí, una obra maravillosa está a punto de aparecer entre los hijos de los hombres. There is no greater missionary anthem. As servants of God, go forth to do exactly what section 3 said that we should, to make sure that a knowledge of a Savior goes unto the world. Now we know historically that the first missionary of the church was Samuel Smith, Joseph's little brother. But section 4 was a revelation given to Joseph's father. Now Joseph Smith Sr. was a fascinating man, a perfect embodiment of what we talked about last time, that prophecy from the book of Joel, that old men would dream dreams and young men would see visions. And Joseph Sr. did dream dreams that prepared him for Joseph's visions. Now, he was one that would have completely understood what people today are saying about, well, I'm, I'm spiritual, not religious. Because Joseph Sr. was a very spiritual man, but did not lean towards organized religion. In fact, his own father had warned him to lean away from it. Uh, remember, it was Lucy Mack Smith that had become Presbyterian, and some of her kids were going towards Methodism and so on. But at one point, when Joseph Smith Sr. had attended a Methodist meeting, his father, Azel, had a copy of Thomas Paine's Age of Reason, which was the, just a blasted, revealed religion, t tried to tear, tear the Bible to shreds. And he took this copy of the Age of Reason and literally threw it into the cabin door to tell his son, read it until you understand it well enough to stop going to church meetings. And, and that kind of stuck. It's interesting that it wasn't just faith in Joseph's family, but skepticism was there as well. And here he is caught between the two. Makes him a, a wonderful example for us in our day as we're pulled in both directions as well. But Joseph Smith Sr. was very spiritual, even when he refused to be religious earlier in life. And once he was called to the work, as we'll see in section four, he grabbed a hold of it with both hands and made an incredible difference in that founding family of this dispensation. At one point he was imprisoned for a debt, a whole $14. But he was told, not only will we forgive you the debt, but we'll even give you back the money you've already paid us on it, if you'll simply deny your testimony of this Book of Mormon. Renounce it and be released. And he refused for the next 30 days. He stayed in prison in horrible conditions, but he stayed true to his testimony of the work of God. In fact, a lot like Paul, he preached in prison every Sunday. And by the time he was released after 30 days, 
two of the people who'd been listening to him ended up getting baptized. He continued to preach the gospel through his life. Six years after this revelation came, he served a, a formal mission. He was 64 years old at the time, but age didn't slow him down. In fact, in that mission, he and his brother John went and traveled 2,400 miles throughout the eastern United States, sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like we saw back in section 3, a knowledge of the Savior has to go forth. Joseph Smith Sr. helped make sure that that would take place. And it all began, formally at least, as he was called through section 4 to this marvelous work. Now this revelation is short. Only seven verses, just long enough for missionaries to be able to memorize, I suppose. But what it contains can speak volumes to any person called to the service of God. In fact, President Joseph Fielding Smith said this about section 4. It contains sufficient counsel and instruction for a lifetime of study. Don't worry, I know these lessons are long, but we're not going to spend that much time. And no one has yet mastered it. Perhaps there is no other revelation in all our scriptures that embodies greater instruction pertaining to the manner of qualification of members of the church for the service of God, and in such condensed form than this revelation. It is as broad, as high, and as deep as eternity. No elder of the church is qualified to teach in the church or carry the message of salvation to the world until he has absorbed, in part at least, this heaven-sent instruction. So I hope we can do at least a little absorbing. Now the way it begins, I, I love. Now behold, a marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. Now this is February of 1829. The priesthood is soon to be restored. The translation of the Book of Mormon is soon to be completed. And the, the Church of Christ is soon to be organized upon the earth. But how does he refer to it? Remember back in 316, he says, My work shall go forth. And here, that work is about to come forth among the children of men. But the adjective he uses to describe that work is marvelous. Literally, that's the adjective he uses. It's a marvelous work. Now there are times in Scripture where the Lord doesn't seem to be quite so effusive in His praise. He doesn't use adjectives like that. Remember in the creation account back in Genesis, after a day of creation, let there be light, and there was light, and then He looks at it, and what's He say? Eh. It's good. Separating sea from land. This is going to be impressive, right? Well, return and report. How's it look? Good. Sun, moon, stars? Anything better? Good. Plants? Good. Oh, animals. We'll let them move on their own. Good. Even after the crowning creation, man and woman, and the six days of labor were finished, what's the highest praise that God gave His creation? Very good. I'll compare that to what he describes as this marvelous work. Now again, don't get me wrong. The creation is very good, but that just means the end of it all, the measure of its creation, is a, a place for my children to grow and learn and become more like me. That all will require work. And that work is marvelous. To all who have been engaged in any part of that work, I know you can testify with me that it is marvelous. Now in verse 2, he speaks to all of us. Therefore, O ye that embark in the service of God, see that ye serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. Now look at those words. Therefore, 
because this work is so marvelous, no wonder we need to give it all that we've got. It is deserving of our all. O ye that embark, embark is a word that's usually used in terms of getting on a, a ship, beginning a voyage. We are embarking on what apostles in our day have called the good ship Zion, headed in direction of that millennial port. We don't get off the ship. We don't mutiny and try to turn it in some other direction. It's the Lord's work, and we are simply embarking upon it. And as we do so, see that ye serve him. I love that he doesn't just say, serve him. He says, see that ye serve him. Be aware of this. Remember in section 3 when he warned Joseph, if you're not aware, then you will fall. Are you watching yourself? Are you self-critiquing? Do you ask the Lord when you're taking the sacrament, Lord, is it I? And Lord, is it this? And are there things I need to stop and other things I need to start? How can I be more engaged? I want to be self-reflective, mindful of the efforts I am making. I want to see that I am serving you and serving you with all. That's everything I've got. All my heart, might, mind, and strength. Years ago, a pair of scholars were presenting a paper at a symposium of a church language and linguistics society. And what they did for their research was go through everywhere in the standard works where heart, might, mind, and strength are discussed to try to make sense of what's the difference between them. I mean, sometimes we kind of just jumble them all together and say, oh yeah, just give God all you got. But is there a difference between serving Him with your heart as opposed to your mind or your might or your strength? Or forget the ors, it's the ands. How do I combine them all to give to God? After some exhaustive research, this is what they ended up with. They defined the heart as one's character or disposition, your governing attitude, your feeling. It's manifest through your choices. The heart is the decision-making center of the human personality. No wonder the scriptures talk so often about softness or hardness of heart. We'll see that more when we get to section 10. That is the body part that the adversary is after and that the Lord is after as well. The heart is really what makes you tick. Now, what's the mind? As these scholars discovered, in the scriptures, the mind is one system of attracting, organizing, and implementing knowledge or information. To what end? To be used by the heart. The mind is a tool subject to the management and leadership of the heart. So by serving God with all my heart, there's my desire, my disposition. I, I'm putting my aim squarely in God's direction. And now that that is set and fixed and established, I'll put everything I can learn and know to that end. Now, in addition to the mind, I will also provide my might. And according to these scholars, might is one's resources, both temporal and spiritual, both internal and external. It's, it's your influence on other people. And finally, strength is one's physical abilities and sources of power. I love those distinctions. So that as I am seeing that I serve God with all my heart, might, mind, and strength, I establish my priorities. I seek first the kingdom of God. And once my heart belongs to Him, this mighty change of heart that He's, that he's trying to facilitate, 
Then everything I learn and see, I can now consecrate my education to God. I can take my might, my resources, anything God has given me. And again, the word consecration comes to mind. I can offer that to him as well. All my influence and my strength, I will do that as long as I can with all the energy of soul until I am safely dead, as Elder Ballard once described. In fact, speaking of President Ballard and all of his, the apostles and prophets that he serves with, I can't think of better examples of people who see that they serve God with all their heart, might, mind, and strength. There is no retirement for them from this marvelous work. In fact, it reminds me of Elder David B. Haight, who ended up being one of the longest living apostles in our dispensation. When he was a little boy, his dad was one of the first people in, the, in town who got a Ford Model T. And at the time, young David was still too little to, to drive it. But that didn't stop him. And so one day he, he was able to crank it up and get in it and start going. And he was having the time of his life until he realized, I don't know how to stop this thing. So what did he do? He just kept driving around the block until the car eventually ran out of gas and just died there in the street. And then he was able to get out and, and confess his sins to his father. But I thought, what a perfect example of the lives of these great and good men. They don't know where the brakes are. They don't know how to stop. And so they just keep serving, circling the globe, making sure this work, this marvelous work is extended to all of God's children until they finally run out of gas. All their heart, might, mind, and strength spent in service to God. It's that that allows them and us to stand blameless before God at the last day. This isn't us working our way to heaven. That's, this is not works righteousness. This is not paying God back for what he's done for us. It is simply accepting his saving grace and taking that enabling power. That's part of the might and means that he's given us and using it to build his kingdom to do for others what he's done for us, to share the good news as every angel and every shepherd wants to. Because if we don't, then we can be blamed by others for not having given them the opportunity to exercise their agency in the way that we have. I remember President Irene talking about that with someone that he cared about that had passed away without President Irene sharing the gospel with him. And years later, still haunted by that, in conference, President Irene talked about, someday I will see that friend again, and he will ask me why I didn't share the good news with him. Is there a sense of blame there if we do not serve God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength? Now, please don't allow this to push you towards toxic perfectionism. In this, just like we saw in section three, there is a balance between God's justice and God's mercy. And just as the Lord is merciful towards our sins of commission, He is willing to make up for our sins of omission too. To find other ways whereby the Word of God can get to the end of every row. But while it is in our power, use that power to share the Word of God. Notice, by the way, that up to this point, we still haven't heard anything about who we're serving. 
who we're, who we're sharing the gospel with, the, the recipients of all our heart, might, mind, and strength. And that's important to realize. This blamelessness has more to do with our actions than their reactions. It's not results in other people's lives that God is asking for here. That depends on their agency. But what depends on yours? Are you seeing yourself serve God with all your heart, might, mind, and strength? Then you are blameless, regardless of how people respond to your efforts. Remember, what he's working on is you, and he can do that in all kinds of different ways. His works and designs and purposes aren't being frustrated. You're building muscles, whether or not you ever actually lift the weight. And you are blameless based on how you serve, not on how others respond to your service. Now verse 3, therefore, if you have desires to serve God, ye are called to the work. I love the fact that the Lord honors our desires here. We'll see that taught beautifully next week in section 7. But even right here, if you want to serve, then do. If you want to be called, then you already are. Don't wait for an engraven invitation. Just find a chair and fold it up and, and, hang, and put it away. Find a sickle and thrust it in with your might. Go do something. You wanted to. And I want to honor that righteous desire. I have a sister-in-law who was an incredible missionary. One of the most focused I ever knew, and I would know because I taught her at the MTC. That's how I get to know, got to know this family. After about a week, she said, Hermano Halverson, do you know my sister? She teaches French here at the MTC. And I said, no, I don't know her. Why? And she said, because I think you're going to have to marry her. And being the obedient type, I did. And it's worked out great. But what was interesting about this sister missionary, my sister-in-law, is she wasn't sure if she was allowed to serve a mission. It's like God made the decision clear for his sons. But for his daughters, it's as if he trusted that there would be a relationship to, to develop. Come and talk to me about your calling. And for her, section 4, verse 3 came as such a kind reassurance one day as she read it. If you want to serve, then come. There is your calling. That was all the invitation she needed. Because her desire was there. And it has never left her. And no wonder it's that way. There is so much marvelous work to be done. It's all hands on deck. He doesn't just need all your heart, might, mind, and strength. He needs all the laborers possible. The harvest is great, but the laborers are few. So let's get harvesting. That's what he says in verse 4. Behold, the field is white already to harvest. Now, careful how he said that. The field is white already to harvest. It's not all space ready. It's already. I think too often we think, oh, it's all ready to harvest. When really it's, it's white already. Now, what's the difference there? I think sometimes we think, oh, it's all ready to harvest. Great. All the growth has been done. It's just kind of like walk under the tree and let the fruit fall into the basket. Go out in the field and it's, it's all ready to harvest. It's all good. The growth is behind us and the work has been done. No, what he's saying is the field is white already. Yes, it's harvest time, but not because the harvest is all ready, but because the field is already white. There's still so much work to be done. 
digging and dunging and pruning and grafting, separating wheat from tares, gathering out the righteous. But it's already white. We got to get going. There's this sense with already that the work is done. The sense of already is more like, what well, we, we got to be doing this already. We should have started this thing yesterday. So instead of a sense of ease from verse 4, we should get a sense of urgency. It is white already. Let's go harvest. There's no time to wait or waste. So thrust in your sickle and do it with your might, with all your resources, with all your influence. Give it all you've got. I love what Von J. Featherstone once said. He graduated beyond sickle harvesting. He said, forget the sickle, let's use a combine. You just picture this massive tractor just going through the field. And, and sure enough, it, we ought to use one. I mean, the, the field is white already. I don't know if we have time to wait on sickle or scythe. And as we do so, the best we can with whatever tools we have at the ready, the same layeth up in store that he perisheth not, but bringeth salvation to his soul. Layeth up in store? Where do we lay up what we have harvested? Remember Ammon's beautiful words? Behold, the field was ripe, and blessed are ye, for ye did thrust in the sickle, and did reap with your might. Yea, all the day long did ye labor. And behold the number of your sheaves, and they shall be gathered into the garners, that they are not wasted. You get a sense of that laid up in store? The way Ammon puts it, they shall not be beaded down by the storm at the last day. And that storm's a-coming. We saw that back in section 1, right? Sealed up unto this day of wrath, gathered into the garner. Yea, neither shall they be harrowed up by the whirlwinds. But when the storm cometh, they shall be gathered together in their place, that the storm cannot penetrate to them. Yea, neither shall they be driven with fierce winds whithersoever the enemy listeth to carry them. But behold... They are in the hands of the Lord of the harvest, and they are His, and He will raise them up at the last day. The best physical representation for the garner of God is the house of the Lord. Thick walls to keep the fierce winds out. Missionaries aren't content to see their investigators dressed in white the first time at the baptismal font. They long to see them dressed in white again at the house of the Lord. That is where we are gathering them in. That is where we are laying up in store. And honestly, as beautiful as that imagery is, the temple of God, even more personal to him is how Ammon ended those verses. It's the hand and not just the house of God where they find themselves. They are in the hands of the Lord of the harvest and they are his laid up in store. Now that hints at them, the fruit of our labor. But go back to the end of verse 4. And who's he talking to? He that thrusts in his sickle, so that he perisheth not. You see a repeat of what we saw in verse 2? If you serve with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, then you stand blameless. It's your action, not their reaction. Verse 4, if you thrust in your sickle with your might, then you perish not. You bring salvation to your soul. Once again, your actions, not their reactions. You see, one of the difficult things about being a missionary is you tend not to know what the result of your mission is supposed to be. 
You think it's all about the investigators, the, the converts that you bring into the church. And yet in this verse, the person God seems to be most concerned about is the missionary, him or herself. You're the one I want to be blameless. You're the one I want not to perish. You're the one I want to find salvation for your soul. So give it all you've got. And let the harvest be mine. Paul understood that beautifully. That I have planted, Apollos has watered, but God gives the increase. It's not up to me. Once I realized that as a missionary, that my zeal didn't diminish at all, but my pressure evaporated. All I have to do is give God my best and then leave it in His hands, come what may. Remember that great verse in Jeremiah 16, 16, when the Lord calls for many fishers and many hunters. And the irony of those is those are two very different ways of gathering. Fish, you throw out the net and gather a boat full. Hunting, no wonder he says you have to look in every mountain and every hill and every hole of the rock. Hunting, you're lucky to find anything. Some missionaries are called to fish. And they go to places where people are eagerly anticipating the gospel that they're bringing. Other people, other missionaries are called to hunt. And they can spend their entire missions searching in every mountain and every hill and in the hole of every rock and come home with what they think are empty hands. When in reality, the hands that are filled are God's and that missionary is in them. You are blameless. You will not perish. You have brought salvation to your soul because you gave me all you had. You lost yourself in service to others. See, that's the beautiful irony of a mission. On the one hand, you have to go in realizing it's not about me. It's about all of them. I'm going to lose myself in service to others. And at the same time, the opposite is equally true. That it's not about them. It's about you. Your actions, not their reactions. But you can't short-circuit it and think of it, well, at the end of the day, it really is about me, so whatever. No, I lose myself, and in the process, I find myself. I love what President James E. Faust said about his mission. And he served in what we would consider a fishing mission. He was in Brazil. Incredible place to serve, right? Temples popping up left and right across that beautiful country. Multiple missions, so many stakes. Incredible people hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's not how Brazil was in President Faust's day. When he served there, it was a hunting mission. He described it this way. In those days, it was a difficult mission. We had hardly any baptisms, and it was very, very discouraging. It took some strength and discipline under those circumstances to work at it and to keep the spirit. We didn't accomplish much except for the changes in ourselves. I feel it was one of the most productive and valuable times in my life. Such a great perspective. Now, the end of that quote is not what I expected after reading the beginning. Difficult mission, hardly any baptisms, nobody would listen to us. Oh, yes, some of the most productive time of my life. Huh? There's not much of a harvest there. Oh, it was never about the harvest. Well, it was, but anyway, the irony, I grew, I became. The farm was never my focus. It was the farmers that I was trying to grow. Now, verse 5 and 6 then 
give us this list of Christ-like attributes that literally you could spend a lifetime trying to develop. In fact, that's what we're called to do. And we sense here a higher form of qualification. We see this clearly in section 121. Many are called, but few are chosen. Well, in verse 3, we see who is called. Anyone who wants to be. All hands on deck. Come and serve. But in 5, we see who is qualified. So if you want to work, then come and do it. But if you want to work well, then develop these attributes. Faith, hope, charity, and love with an eye single to the glory of God. That's what qualifies you for the work. Now, faith, hope, and charity, go back to what we studied in Moroni chapter 7. Mormon's incredible discourse on those three cardinal Christian virtues. Faith in Christ. Hope through His atonement. Charity as a gift of God to all those who diligently serve Him. No wonder he bestows that as a gift upon all those who pray to God with all the energy of heart. True followers of Jesus Christ need that. It's one of their qualifications for service. Now, if we've developed faith, hope, and charity, why does he add love? That seems to be already assumed or understood within the umbrella of charity, which is the pure love of Christ. What's the difference between charity and love in that verse? Honestly, I don't totally know. For years, I've kind of felt, is, is that just redundant? But I do wonder if charity is the highest manifestation of love, the pure love of Christ. Yes, I would assume that that includes all of it. But honestly, that could be an umbrella term for every Christ-like attribute. Right? The greatest of these is charity. All of the others are fulfilled in that. All the law and the prophets revolve around those two overarching great commandments, which are loving God and loving neighbor. There's charity. But I wonder, to be more specific, with underneath that overarching love of Christ, is there love? A human love? Not, not, I'm not talking romantic love, but a, a more of a sociable, a friendship. If charity is the, the highest, the caritas, the agape, is love more of the, the philios, the brotherly love? Again, it's hard to, to distinguish between the two, but I wonder if there's just, I think too often, I, I felt this, where I just was so focused on giving God all my heart, my mind, and strength, that sometimes I worry that I wasn't as loving as I could have been. Not as friendly, not as sociable. I know this is hard for introverts to hear, but I wonder if that is God calling us to develop more than this distant divine charity and to just reach out with neighborly kindness to people and just love them. Again, I don't completely understand the difference between those two words. If you have any ideas, I'd love to hear them in the comments to just to get a sense of what do you think the difference is between charity and love? Why is the Lord asking for both? And then that last part of verse 5 is more clear. And I single to the glory of God. Again, you can't trick the system and go, well, I know it's about me, so it's going to come back and bless me. No. All for His glory. Whether someone converts or doesn't. Whether I grow or don't. Of course, those other blessings will happen. But it's for God's glory. Let your light so shine before men that they can see your good works. But glorify your Father which is in heaven. My eye is single to that. I can laser focus. No, I don't even need depth perception. I only want 
divine perception. Verse 6, then he asks us to remember something. The sense of see that you serve him. Well, remember this, be mindful, be cognizant of the attributes you need to be developing. What's on our list to remember? Faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, diligence. Now again, you could spend the rest of your life studying each of those in turn and never fully understand or fully develop them, at least not in this life. Each of those attributes is worth its own individual study. If it were me, I would probably start with the one I'm most confused about or the one I'm most devoid of. Ask the Lord, Lord, is it this? And when you feel the divine head nod, yeah, start studying that. Remember that one. Work on it. But there is something about the entire list and the cumulative kind of crescendo that we see throughout them. Because it is essentially the same list that Peter gives us in 2 Peter chapter 1 as he describes our growth toward the divine nature. In Peter's version, he makes it clear that this is cumulative, that each is a step to build upon its predecessor. He says, add to your faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and so on. And I think it's even more fascinating to study them in that order then. It's one thing to develop faith, but can I have all the faith that things are going to work out? I have trust in God, but almost to the point where I'm too trusting in His mercy and I don't take seriously His justice, so I don't care so much about my own virtue and obedience to God. Yes, develop your faith. It is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, first principle of the gospel. But when it's there, make sure you begin to purify yourself. Don't presume upon the grace that you have so much faith in. Trust that it is there, but develop your virtue, that spiritual strength. Now, all the faith in the world and all that, that worthiness to have the Holy Ghost with you is essential but as I think it was Elder Bednar who said, it's one thing to be worthy. It's another thing to be worthy and competent. Or something along those lines. To develop your competence, seek knowledge. If it's the Spirit's job to bring all things to your remembrance, then virtue can help bring the Spirit. But knowledge gives the Spirit something to bring back to your remembrance. You've got to put something in there to begin with, right? So develop that. Greeny missionaries are full of faith, and having repented to become worthy of being missionaries, they are full of virtue. It's one of the things I love most about missionaries. But many of them will admit that they were a little weak in the knowledge department. It's amazing to watch the learning curve and how quickly they gain knowledge in the MTC. It's like, whoa, I've never studied the gospel this much in my life. And they come up to speed pretty quick on that. And yet, the danger of that is, I'm full of faith, and that brings zeal. I'm full of virtue. I have the Holy Ghost with me, pushing me forward. I'm full of knowledge now. Well, not full. I'm getting there. And unfortunately, that can get to a point where we become overzealous, or we have no patience with people or understanding for them in their struggles, especially with missionaries that are still working on their own knowledge or faith or virtue. Our temperance is required. That's why in Alma chapter 38, when Alma is talking to one of his best missionary sons, Shiblon, super diligent, super faithful, super obedient, he warns him, be diligent and temperate, son. 
You got to balance this or your zeal will become overzealous. Your faithfulness will become fanaticism. Your passion will become unloving. That's why he also says to Shiblon, bridle all your passions that ye may be filled with love. It's our temperance that allows us to be more loving with people that aren't quite as zealous as we are. That's a tricky one for a lot of missionaries to figure out. No wonder it's a little further down the list. Uh, similar, add to that temperance, patience. Kind of goes hand in hand that as I, as I temper myself, keep things in proper perspective, then hopefully I can be more patient with people that are further back along the path as they're crescendoing in Christ themselves. To that patience, add brotherly kindness. Maybe that's that level of love that's not quite charity yet. To that brotherly kindness, add godliness. Become more like Him. That is a step in the direction of achieving His kind of love, which is charity. And throughout it all, you'd think you'd maxed out there. Well, unfortunately, if you look yourself in the mirror and start thinking, yeah, I think I have maxed out here. No wonder humility comes next. <laughs> Bring yourself down. Keep your level of living up here, but keep your self-perception low enough that you'll continue to move forward because that's where diligence comes in. Otherwise, without that humility, you may stagnate and plateau, stop where you are. And part of the godliness that you've been developing is a belief in eternal progression. And so diligence is required. There are probably a lot of other ways to see the crescendo unfold, to how this leads to this and how I can add this to that and so on. Study that. It is so well worth our time. In fact, as I was pondering that and thinking of full-time missionaries, whom I love, I taught at the MTC longer than I was a missionary myself. So I have taught missionaries longer than I'd ever taught investigators. And going on exchanges, trade-offs, splits with missionaries is such a joy. Having them in my home is a blessing to my family. I love full-time missionaries. And as I pondered them, you, many of you, and thought about verse 6, this is what I wrote in my own notes. Prospective missionaries often tend to worry about their lack of knowledge and try to make up for it with extra diligence. They are careful to preserve virtue and have been raised to value brotherly kindness. But do they exercise faith and cultivate humility? Do they work on patience and strive for temperance? Do they pray with all the energy of heart for the gift of charity and truly follow the Savior in order to receive that divine gift? Do they aim for true godliness in all that they do? I just wanted to put all ten virtues into one paragraph, trying to make sense of how I perceive this amazing rising generation of missionaries. So similar to me, as I was a missionary myself, I would encourage you full-time missionaries and all of us member missionaries to do a similar exercise. Try to put into a single paragraph all ten virtues and where you think your strengths and weaknesses lie, which ones you should be working on, what lack I yet. And once you settle on something that you want to develop, then verse 7 comes almost naturally as this beautiful promise. Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. 
the Lord wants to help. He wants to bring all of those virtues out of you by pouring grace into you. So much of doing missionary work is simply being a missionary. And a missionary is simply a true disciple of Jesus Christ. So go ahead and do. We saw that in verse 2. See that you serve him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength. But even more than do, be. Be faithful and virtuous and knowledgeable and temperate. Be patient and kind. Be godly. Be charitable. Be humble. Be diligent. That might be a helpful way to rephrase verse 6 in your own mind. Not just a bunch of nouns that I'm supposed to remember, or even a bunch of acts that I'm supposed to do. Rather, these are attributes I'm supposed to develop. So to be all of these things. That's what the Spirit is calling us into. I remember when I taught at the MTC, and we had this large meeting of all of the teachers and employees there. And one of the head honchos of the MTC, they had just built a lot. This is before the, the major additions that we've seen more recently. But they had built some other things and, and were really excited about some of the technology they were going to be working on and, and the telecenter where people could call in and, and missionaries could work on things like that and the learning resource center and all kinds of great stuff. Language, resource, software, you name it. But this, this leader, this administrator talked to us and he said, you know, President Boyd K. Packer, Quorum of the Twelve, came to tour the MTC after all of this was done. And I was so excited to show off this incredible stuff to him. Former mission president himself, amazing member missionary throughout his entire life. President of the Quorum of the Twelve, look at all the stuff we've got here. Here we train the missionaries how to teach better. Here they get to practice this. Here they're learning their language. It's, it's just amazing. But this wonderful administrator said to all of us, at the end of the tour, President Packer turned to me and said, this has all been wonderful. Amazing facilities and resources, wonderful. But could you show me where you teach the missionaries how to follow the Spirit? That, that was how President Packer just cut into the chase. All these other things, great. But how do you help them get in tune with the Spirit of God? And this administrator said, forgive my language, but I felt like I had my finger up my nose. Just kind of a... Uh, have I been too focused on all these outward actions that we're trying to help train the missionaries to be able to do? And have I focused enough on the inner attributes that they need to develop for them to be qualified to assist God in His work and glory? In any of these areas where we are lacking, we can ask. He knows He's, he's calling us to a high level of living. Ask for help. How dare we think we can do God's work without God's help? How dare we think we can invite investigators to change their lives if we have not been willing to put in the effort and call upon the grace to change our lives as well? How dare we promise investigators that they can find answers to their prayers if we have not been praying for things ourselves? Asking and receiving, knocking on the door of heaven not just to let investigators through, but to be able to enter it ourselves. So start, ask, knock, just provide some momentum, overcome the inertia, and the Lord will take it from there. He will open the door. And only the Spirit can help you see what's on the other side.